Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, you compare your options, and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw and today it's just me. I'm going to talk about waking up. So at the end of surgery in the operating room, what do you want to be thinking about to have the best, most optimal wake up for your patient and solid end of the case for everyone involved. So I will say that though I am doing this recording alone, I did get some great input from two master clinicians here at Johns Hopkins. I asked their input so it wouldn't just be me giving my own opinions. And so I do want to say a big thank you to April Villamayor and Scott Mittman, both of whom are fantastic anesthesiologists here, really known and respected for their clinical acumen, and I really appreciate their input on this topic. So I think the number one theme that I certainly emphasize and that my colleagues do too is that communication is key. You have to know what's happening in the case. And that is obviously paying attention to the monitors and everything on the anesthesia side, but it's also paying close attention to what's happening happening on the surgical side. And it's not enough just to watch because depending on how many times you've done a case like this, you may or may not be able to piece together what you're seeing with kind of how long things have to go, but you really have to communicate. And I recognize that there are some barriers to this, that as an anesthesia resident or as an anesthesiologist or as any practitioner of anesthesia, when you turn to the surgeon and ask how much time they have to go, surgeons don't always respond well to that. They may take that as if you are giving them a hard time about how much time they're taking. Now, that doesn't make sense. It's not how we mean it, as far as I know, almost any time that we ask that question, but Surgeons can be 
pretty sensitive about that. Now, that's something I think that we need to work on in terms of our overall communication between the anesthesia side and the surgery side of things. We really should be able to ask questions about how much longer surgery has to go without feeling like we're insulting somebody. And actually, in conversations I've had with surgeons, it goes the other way too. Some surgeons feel really reluctant to ask about neuromuscular blockade because they think that we on the anesthesia side get really up in arms if they ask us how many twitches the patient has or if the patient's relaxed, that we take that as an insult as if we're not monitoring the patient well enough. So we really should be giving each other the benefit of the doubt and just being able to ask questions that we have in a respectful, professional way and answer them in a respectful, professional way as well. So regardless of whether or not that is happening as well as it should, it's still important to ask the questions. And on the anesthesia side, I think we can frame them in such a way as to maybe hopefully preempt some of that concern. So we can say, for example, you know, I'm trying to time the dosing of my final anesthetics here. Can you give me a feel for whether you think you have, you know, somewhere in the half an hour to an hour range, or is it going to be longer than that? Either way is fine with me. I just want to be able to dose appropriately. So that kind of phraseology, I think, can maybe help to prevent some of the misunderstanding. However you phrase it, it is important to have those conversations because you do need to know how much longer you're going to have or else you can't obviously effectively start working toward a wake-up. There are some other important clues you can look for that things are starting to wrap up. So you may see the specimen out if there's a specimen being removed. You may see them start to close fascia. You may see the attending surgeon scrub out and leave. They start asking for drains. The nurses may start doing an instrument count. And then you also want to know how many incisions are there to close. Is this a big open incision or is it just laparoscopic port incisions? It's important to know if they're going to be closing with sutures or closing with staples? Are they putting a vac dressing on or are they closing multiple layers, including the skin? All of that is going to help determine how much time is left. Often your circulating nurse can be a really great resource too. While you may not have done a ton of this particular surgery, often the nurses have. And so they may be able to help you figure out about how long you have left if the surgeons either aren't giving you a good idea or despite what I've urged you, you are still reluctant to ask them. You also want to try to get to know the surgery and the surgeon's preferences as much as you can. And again, a lot of that comes from communication. So I always touch base with surgeons the night before I'm going to work with them to get a feel for what they're thinking about in the case. And one thing that's good to ask is, what are you thinking about in terms of the end of the case? For example, some surgeons may really want a very quick neuro exam as soon as possible after the surgery is over right there in the operating room. For example, some surgeons who do carotid endarterectomies have that preference. They would like to be able to do a neuro exam basically immediately after they finish closing. And so if you say to them, I'm happy to try to facilitate that, of course, it may mean that as you're finishing closing, the patient may start to lighten up enough to move. And they may say, that's fine. I'm, I don't mind them moving if it facilitates me getting that neuro exam. And so then you would start to lighten things up earlier. On the other hand, you might have some surgeries, for example, endonasal surgeries or neck surgeries where they really would like to have the patient not buck, cough, or move at all because they're worried about the suture line. And so you may keep the patient really deep and then tell the surgeon, you know, I'm happy to do that. Of course, we may be in the operating room a little longer waiting for them to wake up, and they may be, may be totally fine with that. Again, it's the communication that's important, so you can tailor the anesthetic to work for that particular case. All right, let's get into some specifics. So often, if you're using inhaled anesthetics, 
pretty much you're using either isoflurane, sevoflurane, or desflurane, plus minus some nitrous oxide. So if you are using isoflurane, of course, that's a longer acting agent, and you're going to want to turn that down or off sooner. So there's a couple ways to go about this. You can start turning your isoflurane down pretty early, and then just see if the patient gets too light, you can always give some propofol. You can turn the iso down and add some nitrous oxide. Nitrous, as you know, is very quick on and quick off. And so you can add some nitrous. Now, some people are reluctant to use nitrous because of the concern about post-op nausea and vomiting. As long as you give some anti-emetic and you're not using it for a very long time, there's probably not actually an increased risk of post-op nausea and vomiting with short uses of nitrous. And then the other thing, of course, you can do is turn off your ISO and replace it with either desflurane or sevoflurane, which are going to be much faster on and off than the isoflurane. The key, though, is doing this far enough in advance that you really can get rid of that isoflurane. So you can't do it just a few minutes or even 15, 20 minutes before the end. You really want to start doing this about an hour before the end of the case. You're going to want to make a decision whether to turn off your ISO and turn on desert or SIVO, whether to turn your ISO down significantly and turn on some nitrous, you can find what the right mix is for you. In general, you don't have to be at a full MAC during closure. There isn't as much stimulation, so you can, let's say you turn off your ISO, you turn on some desflurane, and you can try to shoot for about 0.7 MAC so that you can start to get closer to being able to wake up. Again, remember, you're always going to have to tailor this to the individual surgery. If there's, if there's a lot of danger associated with any potential movement, then you wouldn't want to take any chances. But as long as a little bit of movement is okay, you can start to lighten things up there toward the end, especially after they're finished closing fascia, and then start to move toward closing skin. And then, of course, as soon as the dressings are on, you're going to want to turn off everything and go up to either 100% oxygen or some people like to extubate on more like 90 or 80% oxygen to try to avoid some of the absorption atelectasis. Whatever your preference is, you're going to turn the oxygen up and make sure all your anesthetic gas is off. Again, if it's the kind of surgery where a little bit of movement is okay, you may wait. You may actually turn off your DES or SIVO or ISO, whatever it is that you're on, turn it all the way off before the dressings are on, leave just some nitrous on maybe, and then, again, knowing they may move a little bit, but that that's okay. Of course, you're always going to want to keep in mind your neuromuscular blockade. So if you have used neuromuscular blockade, you're going to want to reverse it. Almost always, if you're using it throughout the case, you're going to want to wait until fascia is closed, assuming fascia was open for this case, until you reverse neuromuscular blockade. Very key to think about whether you're using Sugamidex or neostigmine glycopyrrolate. If you're using Sugamidex, you can reverse rocuronium and vecuronium in just a few minutes. If you're using neostigmine and glycopyrrolate, it takes a lot longer to get back to a full reversal. Even if you have four twitches, it can still take up to 20 minutes or so to get full reversal. You can learn more on the podcast that we did about neuromuscular blockers and neuromuscular blockade reversal, but very key to keep in mind that it can take a little longer than you might think. So you don't want to wait till 10 seconds before you want to pull the tube out and then give neostigmine and glycopyrrolate. You want to give it as soon as the fascia is closed so there's time before you're actually pulling the tube where they can become fully reversed. And then, of course, Sugamidex, as I said, much faster. You have a little more leeway there. But that said, once the fascia is closed, it's probably safe to reverse. All right, now let's look at how this differs if you're doing a TIVA. So obviously, there's multiple different agents you can use. 
pretty ubiquitously you're going to be using propofol. You may then also have ketamine or IV lidocaine on board, maybe an opiate drip. And I would emphasize there's no magic recipe to this. Different patients, different cases are going to be different. That said, I will try to give you some general guidelines. So propofol, you have to remember, has a longer and longer context-sensitive halftime the longer it's being run. We sometimes think of propofol as fairly quick on, quick off, but if you're using it over the course of a long case, that is not always true. And so what you want to be thinking of is can you start decreasing your propofol throughout the case? Ideally, if a case goes more than a couple of hours and you're running high-dose propofol, you're going to really want to try to get it down as low as you can. Now, presumably, you're probably using a BIS monitor or some other method of monitoring the depth of anesthesia. And if you are, you can try to titrate to that. If you're not using a BIS monitor, you're going to have to titrate to your vital signs and other things that you're using to indicate depth of anesthesia. But if you can get your propofol down to 70 or 80 mics per kilo per minute during the case after the first few hours you're going to be in better shape than if you leave it at 150 for the entire 70 or 80, uh, the entire seven or eight hours of the case. Once the fascia is closed, again, assuming that a little movement is okay, you can come down even further while they're closing skin, maybe to 40 or 30, and then you want to make sure you get it off as soon as they are done or almost done so that you start having time to really metabolize it and, and see a real wake-up in a reasonable amount of time. Another approach, rather than turning down to 30 or 40 during closing, would be to turn off your propofol completely and turn on some nitrous, plus minus DES. Now, again, the question would be, why were you using TIVA? You obviously would not do DES or SIVO if it was for an MH-susceptible uh, patient, but you could do uh, some nitrous or DES or SIVO if it was a patient who you had done a TIVA just because that was uh, the preference for post-op nausea and vomiting or whatever, you could do a little bit. Again, a lot of people like to avoid inhaled anesthetics completely if they're doing a TIVA, in which case just turn the propofol down but not all the way off. But if you're okay using a little nitrous at the end, that might be a nice way to get the propofol off early, turn on some nitrous to try to bridge you. Again, assuming a little movement is okay with whatever case and surgeon you're working with. Ketamine and lidocaine drips, a lot of people will turn those off about an hour before the end of the case. Some people like to leave at least ketamine on at low dose. It also depends on what dose you've been running it at. So just some examples. If you're running ketamine at 10 mics per kilo per minute, then you probably need to get that off an hour, maybe even an hour and a half before the end of the case. If you're running it at 5 mics per kilo per minute, maybe a half an hour before. And if you're running really low-dose ketamine, 2 mics per kilo per minute, for example, that you may choose to leave on, either till extubation or even through and into the PACU. So the low enough dose of ketamine should not be a problem. But if you're using higher dose, you do need to get that off early. Lidocaine, a lot of people will turn off around an hour before the end. Remifentanil is something that people often are using with their propofol for a TIVA. And with Remy, you want to think about, we think of it as so fast on and fast off. But remember, it does, especially if you're using high dose like 0.2 of Remy, you do want to realize that it's going to take a little a little while. It's not going to take a huge amount of time. It's not going to take hours, but it has to go down by a few half-lives, so it's going to take a little while. So in general, you probably want to turn Remy off about 20 minutes before you want a patient to start breathing. You might choose to turn it down to maybe 0 0.02, 0 0.03, if you think that would help to prevent some bucking at the end of a case, especially if, again, it's a case where you really don't want a patient to move or buck, uh, maybe with a neck incision. Other opiates, you really have to make the call 
based on the patient and the surgery and how much pain they're going to have. If you're running a high-dose fentanyl drip during the case, you probably want to turn that way down or even off, again, maybe an hour before the end of the case, and then titrate in opiates once you get the patient breathing. In general, I think that's a great strategy if you can get the patient breathing to get them breathing. Again, you can't do that if you need profound neuromuscular blockade. They're not going to breathe. But if you can get a patient to breathe, then you can titrate your opiates based on respiratory rate, which is a really nice way to do it because if they're breathing, then clearly you don't have to worry about apnea from the opiates because they're breathing. Now, I will say one really important thing is to not assume that a patient who seems to be breathing on pressure support is definitely breathing. Sometimes the pressure support can be set sensitively enough that movements from the surgeon, even cardiac oscillations can trigger the vent. And you can have a patient look like they're breathing regularly when they're not actually taking any respiratory effort. So the only way to be sure is to take them off the vent, put them just on the bag, and then see if they breathe. If they do, even if their tidal volumes aren't great, if they make respiratory efforts, then you know that they are actually breathing. If they, Then you can put them back on pressure support, let the machine give them the support so they get good tidal volumes. But that's the only way to know for sure that they're breathing on their own. So one thing that's come up a few times is this question of, depending on the case, how do you time your wake up? And so I just want to say a few words about that. If you know there's going to be a long closure, so again, open case, like an open Whipple, and you know they're going to do a multiple layer closure, you're going to have time. So you, in that setting, can do kind of what we've talked about, where you might choose to turn your ISO off and turn some DES or SIVO on, and then turn that down to about 0.7 mac during closure, then turn it off as you're getting toward the end of closure, maybe with some nitrous on. Can you have time for all of that? If you know it's going to be a fast closure, maybe they're stapling an open wound, then you may want to think about turning the ISO off an hour or two before the end of the case, again, and replacing it like we've said, with SIVO or Desflurane so that you have that faster-acting agent, faster-off agent, which you can turn off plus-minus some nitrous at the end of the case. And then if it's going to be a laparoscopic or robotic case where there's going to be minimal closure, just some quick ports to close, you may want to avoid ISO completely and just use DES or SIVO if you're going to use an inhaled anesthetic during the case. And again, for the TIVA, it would be the same thing. If, you're, if it's going to be a very quick closure, you're going to want to get that propofol way down, maybe even off early, and then titrate in a little pushes of propofol if you need to. Maybe use some nitrous if you can. And if not, just make sure you don't have a patient really deep on propofol when there's going to be a fast closure. Now, another question is, what do you do if you mistime this and your patient does start to move uh, or get light before you want them to? So there's a couple of options. I say the most common is probably that people will push small doses of propofol. It's pretty fast acting. And so you can push 20 or 30 milligrams of propofol is probably a reasonable dose. Sometimes people get a little overzealous and push 50, 60, 70 milligrams of propofol. And then you can end up with quite a tail on that, especially if they've been on a propofol drip during the case. The other option, instead of pushing propofol, would be to give some narcotic. And this you want to be very careful with. You want to ideally make sure you have a patient who's already breathing. We'll talk in a minute about getting a patient breathing at the end of a case. But you want to make sure you have a patient breathing and maybe you're titrating the narcotic to keep them comfortable. If you aren't sure about that, You want to think about how much narcotic you've given, whether the patient is opioid tolerant, meaning they're on them at home or not, before you give a ton of opiate at the end of the case. Obviously, you can reverse with some Narcan, but we'd like to avoid that if possible because you do want some pain control, and it can be a little tricky to titrate your Narcan to have a patient 
be awake and breathing but still comfortable. So you want to be a little careful with that. Better just not to overdo the narcotics. The other thing to think about is at the end of the case, as you're lightening your anesthetic, you don't want to do a whole lot to be very stimulating to the patient. If the surgeons are just closing, that's not a lot of stimulation. If you start yanking on the NG tube or very aggressively suctioning, that may stimulate the patient to move even if what the surgeons were doing wasn't going to. So try to get the suctioning done while they're still deep and then maybe wait until right before you're going to pull out the tube before you suction again rather than suctioning regularly when the patient is a little lighter. All right, let's talk about getting a patient breathing at the end of a case. So if they're profoundly neuromuscularly blocked, you're not going to be able to do this. But as long as they they can still be fairly relaxed, but if they are able to generate any diaphragmatic movement, then you can get them breathing, triggering a pressure support as long as, again, you make sure it's real by putting them on the bag first. Now, remember, even if the patient has no twitches, their diaphragm is a very robust muscle, which may still be able to work. So even if they have no twitches, it doesn't mean you can't get them breathing on their own with pressure support. So how do you do it? Most people will put the patient on a mode like SIMV with pressure support. So what does that mean? It means you set a respiratory rate, and you're going to set it pretty low. You maybe set it down to four or six breaths per minute. And then the patient's CO2 will start to rise, because at first they'll only be getting those four or six breaths. As their CO2 rises, it will stimulate their drive to breathe, and if they are going to breathe, they will start breathing, and then the pressure support will kick in, so those extra breaths they will get support for. Once you see that the patient is taking some extra breaths, you can then switch them over to pressure support. Probably you want to switch first to the bag, meaning totally manual, make sure they are actually making respiratory effort and then put them on pressure support, and you can feel good about a respiratory rate once you've done that. And once again, the advantage of this is that you now see a patient's respiratory rate, and you can now titrate your pain control, your narcotics, to a respiratory rate of about 10 to 12 and know that your patient is pretty comfortable. Some listeners have asked about awake versus deep extubation. This is a little bit of a different debate in the pediatric world, and so I'm not going to talk about that today. But in general, for adults... You can extubate deep, you can extubate awake. I think a lot of people will not do a deep extubation on anyone who was a difficult airway at all, but if they were an easy airway and there's a reason to do it deep, meaning you may have an incision uh, of a kind that you really don't want a patient to be bucking or coughing at the end, then if they were an easy intubation, that's a patient you might consider extubating deep. However, if you if you have no reason to extubate them deep or if they were in difficult airway, you probably are going to want them to be pretty awake. Same would go, for example, for patients with OSA. Unless there's a really good reason, you probably want them fully awake, cooperating, and protecting their airway. In general, I think extubating adults deep, in my experience, is fairly rare. People do do it sometimes, but much more commonly to do it awake. LMAs, on the other hand, since it's not actually protecting the airway, it's not preventing laryngospasm, many people will take those out deeper than they would an ET tube. And then you want to think about your criteria for extubation. So this is going to depend, again, on the patient. What do I mean? The oral board answer, of course, is that you have your strict criteria for extubation. You want to see a tidal volume of at least 6 cc's per kilo. You want to see a patient who's cooperating and able to follow commands. You want to have a patient who can demonstrate strength. You want to have a patient who can oxygenate and ventilate appropriately. And all those things are true. But there may be times with a totally healthy young patient 
who, for whatever reason, maybe they got some ketamine and they're not fully cooperative, you may decide, or maybe they wake up and they're really just aggressive and, and sitting up and trying to pull the tube out themselves, but you can't really measure things well because they're, they're flailing around. You know, there may be those kind of patients where you do decide that you're going to take the tube out because you're pretty confident that they're ready for it because they're about to take it out themselves. On the other hand, you may have sicker patients, older patients, who you really do want to use those strict criteria the same as you would in the ICU with really thinking about the mechanics of their ventilation and feeling good about their ability to ventilate and oxygenate and pull reasonable tidal volumes. It is important to remember that patients who received high-dose ketamine, patients who've had a lot of narcotic, may be a little less inclined to follow commands. They may still be, with the ketamine, a little dissociated. And so you really may not be able to wait for a patient to fully follow commands. Again, that's going to be your call in the setting that you're in, taking everything into account. But you want to keep that in mind, that a patient may be breathing with adequate tidal volumes, but they may not follow commands, and you may decide to extubate them. Again, you have to take the whole clinical picture into account. You want to make sure that you have prepared the patient adequately with post-op analgesia, whether that's titrating in some opiate to a respiratory rate, as we discussed, or whether they may have had a peripheral nerve block beforehand, and you're going to take that into account. Maybe they have an epidural in place. You may decide to bolus that epidural. It's pretty common at the end of a case, whether or not you've run the epidural during the case, to give a little bolus of something longer acting, like bupivacaine, through the epidural. Some people like to put some opiates through the epidural at the end, some fentanyl, for example. A common thing might be to give, assuming the patient is hemodynamically stable, some quarter percent bupivacaine with maybe 50 micrograms of fentanyl. So how much? Eh, Maybe three, four, five cc's of quarter percent bupivacaine with a 50 mics of fentanyl. That would be a relatively common thing. Some people don't like to bolus anything stronger than what will be run in the actual pump that's going into the epidural post-op because they want it to be the same. So if that's going to be 0.125% bupivacaine, then they may use that. So you, again, want to figure out what your hospital protocol is and what you're comfortable with, but giving something through an epidural might be a reasonable option as well. Sometimes patients will get post-op but pre-wake-up blocks, like a TAP block. So obviously if that's happening, you want to take that into account. Call your team that's going to do the TAP block, or if you're doing it, get ready. Make sure you have the equipment so that when the surgeons are done, you can do the TAP block and then wake the patient up. Whatever it is that you're going to do for post-op analgesia, you want to make sure you've thought about that in advance. Similarly, you want to be thinking about anti-nausea prophylaxis in advance, whether that means you're going to give 4 or 8 milligrams of Zofran, whether that, and Zofran is ondansetron. For any international listeners who don't call it Zofran, uh, you may decide to give something else. If the patient has a strong history of post-op nausea and vomiting, you might give your ondansetron and some uh, promethazine. Maybe you gave some decadron, some dexamethasone up front. So you want to really think about how you're going to approach anti-nausea prophylaxis uh, really from the beginning, but certainly as you're moving toward the end of the case. You want to think about the positioning of the patient. So uh, if they are at all obese or have OSA, you may want to put them in a little bit of a beach chair position with their back up a little bit and their knees up a little bit so they don't slide. Really offloading that abdomen away from the lungs a little bit will help them take better breaths and potentially prevent some of the development of atelectasis. Obviously, if they were prone or lateral during the case, you're going to want to get them back to a good position. If possible, again, beach chair is a good one to be in for extubation as long as you have good access to the airway. We already mentioned, but you're definitely going to want to make sure you have reversed neuromuscular blockade. And with the exception of a patient who you maybe used succinylcholine with at, on induction, uh, 
Really, any patient who has received non-depolarizing blockers, rocuronium, vecuronium, cisatricurium, you are going to want to probably give some reversal, even if they have four twitches, unless you have an accelerometer where you can really measure and know that you're back at a train-of-four ratio of 90% or above. More on that in the episode that I did on neuromuscular blockade reversal. But suffice it to say that you should probably be giving something, whether it's neostigmine glycopyrrolate or whether it's Sugamidex, you should be giving something to patients who received a non-depolarizing blocker. And remember, you should check twitches after reversing. Now, if they started with four twitches and then you reverse them, of course, it's probably not that useful. They're just going to have four twitches, though maybe much stronger. But certainly, if they didn't have four twitches, you want to make sure that that happened. Why is that important? So you never know when maybe some syringe got mixed up, the IV infiltrated, something happened, and you think you reversed them when, in fact, you did not. That's good to know. So both measuring and then documenting reversal and measurement of their twitches after reversal is good practice. Remember to suction the patient before you extubate, as long as there's some contraindication to that. But if you have an ET tube in, you're going to want to suction because of those secretions that can pool above the cuff. And then when you take the cuff down, you don't want them shooting down into the lungs. Ideally, you want to have a patient whose lungs are full of air when you take out the breathing tube so that the first thing they do is cough or exhale so that some of those secretions go out instead of falling in. And you want to be careful with the suctioning. You can actually cause damage to the mucosa with the Yankow or suction. So you want to try to get down around the cuff of the tube without sucking, for example, the uvula into your Yankower. And now hopefully you have an awake, comfortable patient who you can take to the PACU or the ICU. So to sum up, in general, a good wake-up takes planning starting, I would argue, the day before surgery. Why? Because it takes the night before or the afternoon before, communication with the surgeon. What kind of wake up in terms of timing are they looking for? Would they rather that the patient woke up immediately, even if that means they were moving a little during closure, or would they rather they not move even an iota, even if it means waiting around longer in the operating room? Getting that feel from the surgeons, making sure you compare notes and you're on the same page starts the day before, or I guess you could have that conversation in pre-op the day of surgery, but the earlier the better. Then you need to do your own planning. How are you going to communicate? How are you going to find out how the surgery is going and when it's going to end? What's your plan for anti-nausea prophylaxis? If you're giving decadron, dexamethasone, you're going to want to give that early in the case. So you have to plan that early. You want to start thinking about what your anesthetic is going to be and how, if at all, you're going to change it toward the end. If you're running a TiVo, remember to turn down the propofol along the way. If you're using anesthetic gas... Are you using ISO? And if you're using ISO, when are you going to turn that down or off? Are you going to replace it with desflurane or sevoflurane? Are you going to use nitrous or not? What is your plan if the patient moves at the end when you're lightening things up? Are you going to push some propofol? If so, you want to probably have that propofol in line, ready to go, so that you can push it right away and flush it in. Don't forget your post-op nausea and vomiting prophylaxis that comes at the end, whether that's on Dancitron or something else. Think about your preparations in terms of reversal. What are you going to use? When are you going to give it? Are you going to be able to get the patient breathing on their own? If so, you're going to let the CO2 rise. Make sure it's real breathing by putting them on manual on the bag and then put them on pressure support. Are you going to titrate opiates 
towards a respiratory rate? What are you going to use? Is it going to be fentanyl? Is it going to be hydromorphone? Whatever you've decided and works right for that patient, being careful to keep your eye on the respiratory rate and not overdo it. Don't forget if you're running adjuncts like ketamine or lidocaine to get those off as early as you want to get them off. And by that, of course, I mean low-dose ketamine, you may not want to get it off, but high-dose ketamine and lidocaine, you probably want to get off an hour before the end of the case, give or take. High-dose opiate drips, you want to get off an hour before the end of the case. And again, propofol can be that real sticking point. If I, if there's one thing that I think causes a delayed wake-up more than anything else, it's propofol. And when people leave the propofol going at high dose for too long, get the propofol down low, supplement if you need to with little pushes or with some nitrous or whatever you want to use, but get that propofol off early if you want to see a patient wake up quickly. Remember to suction, remember to reverse your neuromuscular blockade, remember to get the patient in a good position, especially if they're obese, and then you can extubate and you should have a patient who ideally will wake up. Some It's not always going to be that perfect wake up, right? We all want that perfect wake up where a patient, we say their name, they open their eyes, they're 100% comfortable, they don't cough or gag, they move themselves over to the stretcher at the end of the case. So those happen, but they don't always happen. And that's okay. This isn't, there is no perfect recipe that you can do that you'll have that kind of wake up every time. But you can take all of this stuff into account and end up with more often good wake-ups that are well-timed rather than having to sit in the OR shouting a patient's name for 20, 30 minutes at the end of a case. You can get it a little better timed when you take all of this into account. All right, that is it. I hope this was helpful. Please leave comments on the website because this especially is a topic that we can all learn from different people's input. Go to ACRAC.com, find this episode, leave a comment. What did I miss or what do you disagree with or what do you agree with? What do you do to time your wake-ups? Are there little tips and tricks that other people could learn from? That's really the beauty of this whole thing, that there's a community out there that everyone can learn from. So leave a comment, let other people learn from your thoughts. Again, that's at ACCRAC.com. You can also join the mailing list there and see all the other episodes. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show when they're looking for a podcast about anesthesia or critical care. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Huge thanks, as always, to those of you who are already patrons. And, of course, a big thanks and shout-out to Brian Park for the great outlines he's making one by one for the episodes. You'll see them pop up in the show notes. Thanks, everyone out there, for listening. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets 
odds if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 